0: Welcome to session seven of the Business Buying Masterclass, Contents of a Letter of Intent, Making the Initial Offer. So you found a business you like and you're ready to make your first offer, but how? What should it include? We're glad you asked. In this session, we'll walk through the structure and contents of a letter of intent often referred to as an LOI. Our goal in today's session is to arm you with the information you need to develop an effective offer that both improves your chance of success while simultaneously protecting your interests. Welcome to the seventh session of this Business Buying Masterclass. Let's get started.
1: Are you part of a new generation that values what truly matters? Say goodbye to the rat race and hello to a life of purpose and fulfillment. Introducing the Mundane Millionaires Podcast, the ultimate destination for entrepreneurs who prioritize family, community, quality of life, and financial success. Join hosts Kevin Henderson and Eric Pasifici as they unveil the secrets to building a prosperous life without sacrificing what's truly important. In each episode, they dive deep into the stories and strategies of everyday entrepreneurs who have mastered the art of achieving financial stability, controlling their time, and investing in the things that truly make life great. And here's the best part. The Monday Millionaires podcast is available as both an audio podcast on all your favorite platforms, as well as a video podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Tune in during your daily commute, your workout sessions, or whenever you need a dose of inspiration. Let Eric and Kevin guide you on a journey of personal and financial growth that will transform your life. Follow us on all major social media platforms at Pod, or head to MondayMillionaires.com to embark on a path of financial independence, freedom of time, and the building of extraordinary families and lives. Subscribe, download, and join our community of ambitious individuals who are redefining success on their own terms.
0: What is an LOI? A letter of intent often referred to as an LOI is a short form document utilized by a buyer and seller to negotiate certain material preliminary terms of a potential acquisition. Sometimes you'll hear other terms thrown around like indication of interest or IOI, memorandum of understanding or MOU or term sheet. While there are some key differences between each of these documents and their intended use, By and large, when used in the small business acquisition space, the differences are immaterial. The principal characteristic of each of them is all focused on the same outcome to document a preliminary, non-binding understanding between buyer and seller that is intended to create a strong foundation for the negotiations to come. So why is the LOI step necessary? Why wouldn't it be more efficient to skip this step and move on to negotiating the purchase agreement? It can be at times, sure. However, in most instances, before you spend the considerable time and cost necessary conducting fulsome due diligence and negotiating a purchase agreement, it makes sense to confirm that you and the seller are on the same page with regard to major components of the deal, including most notably the purchase price, the deal structure, asset versus equity purchase, the time frame certain non-compete and other restrictive covenants, the exclusivity period, and certain other deal terms. Waiting until you're at the three yard line to find out that you and the seller are not on the same page regarding deal breaker terms would be a waste of everyone's time and money and a major setback for your search. The non-binding nature of LOIs. Even though an LOI is of critical importance, it's also of critical importance in almost every case that the LOI be non-binding. In other words, the LOI is intended to summarize key terms of an eventual transaction, but neither party should be able to legally enforce the terms of the LOI on the other party. That seems crazy, right? Well, no. The LOI is a handshake agreement on fundamental transaction terms intended to find and flush out any material differences between the parties' expectations that make abandoning the transaction before incurring meaningful fees and expenses possible. However, the LOI is by definition not a complete agreement. The buyer has not yet had a chance to properly diligence the company, for example, In other words, preserving optionality after the LOI stage is in everyone's best interest. Practice tip, don't make the mistake of assuming that an LOI will automatically be non-binding. Courts have at times held certain LOIs to be binding agreements, placing the parties in very difficult situations as a result. Be sure to make it a thousand percent clear that your LOI is non-binding in the text of the LOI itself. State it on every page if you need to. The last thing you need is a grumpy seller claiming, but I thought we had a deal, and then suing you when you have to walk away from the deal as a result of misstated financial statements or otherwise. Standard terms of an SMB LOI. Next, we're going to go category by category and analyze the terms of a typical LOI and how to think about each, starting with number one, the buyer introduction. It's always a good idea to introduce yourself and your strengths as a buyer at the outset of your LOI. Be sure to explain what it is that attracts you to the business and why you're interested in acquiring it. But remember that a seller is usually less interested in the amazing returns you expect to get on your investment, and in fact may use that information to negotiate a higher multiple. Be smart here. Try to identify the things the seller cares most about during preliminary due diligence, including in the confidential information memorandum and discussions you may have with the broker and seller. Recognize things like strong brand equity and reputation, skilled and dedicated workforce, etc. And mention how you want to continue the legacy that the seller has built. Remember, you're selling yourself as a buyer as much as the seller is selling their business. Part two is the transaction description. With those initial pleasantries out of the way, you'll move immediately into the substance of the LOI. There are a number of ways to do this, but it's not uncommon to use an outline format with numbered headings. First up, the transaction description. The LOI should provide a clear description of the transaction, including who is buying what from whom. Is this an asset or equity deal? Who is the actual buyer? You personally or an existing entity or maybe even a new entity to be formed during the transaction process. All of these items should be addressed here. Practice tip, it's easy to gloss over the accuracy of the term buyer in an LOI, But you do so at your own peril. Oftentimes, an LOI will be drafted describing John Doe as the buyer, when in reality, John Doe has every intention of forming a new entity for purposes of the acquisition. Now, assume for a second you have some seller financing in the deal that John Doe doesn't want to personally guarantee. By not clarifying who the buyer is, the seller may think John Doe individually is the buyer, and therefore all of John Doe's personal assets are available to enforce the seller note. This is not a good outcome for John Doe if he didn't want his personal assets guaranteeing the note. Even if something seems trivial, like the scope of who the buyer is, it can have broader implications that you're not thinking of. Make sure you're consulting the right experts throughout the LOI process to make sure that you don't inadvertently include or omit something important at the LOI stage, making it much more difficult to negotiate what you want down the road. As an example, a simple transaction description could look like the following. At the closing of the acquisition, a new entity to be formed by John Doe will purchase from seller and seller will sell to the buyer all of the assets of the seller used or held for use in the business. Make special note of that last clause. Take extra care to make sure that you accurately describe the structure of the transaction. As we discussed in last week's session, Section 6, Structuring the Deal, the structure of your transaction has far-reaching consequences on fundamental deal points that drive significant value, such as liabilities that may be assumed by the buyer, taxes, third-party consents needed for closing, and more – The last thing you want to do is describe a stock acquisition in an LOI when what you really meant was an asset acquisition or vice versa. It can be very costly if you can't walk back such a seemingly innocent mistake. Next, the purchase price. This section's easy, right? Well, sort of. Here you'll describe how much is going to be paid and in what form it will be paid. That could be as simple as a single sentence saying the full purchase price will be paid in cash at the closing. But more likely than not, though, there's going to be some combination of two or more of the following cash payment, seller promissory note, assumption of debt, transfer of in-kind property like tangible property, equipment, et cetera. Equity interests in the buyer entity or holding company of the buyer entity. There may be escrows and holdbacks, and there may even be future performance based earnout payments, which in turn can be paid in one or more of these foregoing methods when describing any of the above, there's a balance to be struck. You wanna provide enough detail that it avoids future disagreement over fundamental terms, but you don't wanna provide so much detail that you end up engaging in protracted negotiations with the seller on legalese at the LOI phase. For example, if you intend to include seller financing in your deal, you may simply state the size of the note, the amortization period and maturity date, the interest rate, and whether the note will be secured or unsecured and or guaranteed by the buyer principles. As an example, a sample purchase price provision could look like the following. The purchase price for the company would be blank dollars, and here's where you would pick the structure of your deal, would be paid in cash at the closing, or you may say and will be paid in the following manner and then lay out bullet point by bullet point how that purchase price is broken down and paid. In most cases, you wanna include some agreed level of working capital in your transaction. If so, you'll wanna at least mention that in the LOI. You may be wondering, how can I determine the need for working capital without having conducted a full due diligence process? That's a great question. And typically, you can't. So you want to include general language in the LOI. For example, you may include the following language in your letter of intent. The purchase price offered assumes that the assets will include a normalized level of working capital consistent with the past practices of the company at a level to be mutually agreed by the parties in the definitive agreement and determined in accordance with the buyer's third-party quality of earnings review. The next section is representations and warranties and indemnification. Negotiating fulsome reps and warranties and accompanying indemnification provisions is generally well beyond the scope of the LOI stage. That said, the LOI should typically state at least that the purchase agreement will contain customary representations and warranties to avoid any disagreement down the road over whether or not the buyer is purchasing the business, quote, as is. Additionally, the LOI should lay out any agreed upon terms in the indemnification section. But practice tip. For those of you familiar with the M&A process, you may be tempted to include some level of detail surrounding indemnification, such as survival periods for the reps and warranties, baskets or deductibles, and indemnification caps. Tread carefully here in the LOI. The reality is that many sellers and their counsel in the Main Street MA space aren't as savvy as their private equity counterparts when it comes to indemnification. We often see more buyer-friendly indemnification terms in small business transactions, so being too detailed in the LOI could actually backfire. You may end up giving away more than you need to on indemnification. The negotiation of representations and warranties and indemnification can often be a point of frustration for first-time buyers and sellers. Why does it take so long, and why do these provisions even matter? Well, sit tight and stay tuned, because we'll cover indemnification in much more detail later on in the course. The next section of your LOI may be conditions to closing. This section will describe all of the contingencies that the transaction hinges on. The last thing you want to do is set the expectation with the seller that you will close the transaction before you're ready. In this section of the LOI, you'll list several customary closing conditions, but you should feel free to add any deal or buyer-specific conditions if they're important to the ability of the buyer to close the transaction. A practice tip here, the seller is almost always going to be nervous through the entire deal process that the transaction is going to fall apart and the buyer will walk away. Transparency is your best friend here. Communicate expectations and requirements clearly and early to avoid any unnecessary stress caused by surprises during the deal process. One of those areas are the conditions to closing. Be transparent, clear, and upfront from the get-go, what contingencies have to be satisfied before you'll close the transaction. Some common conditions to include in your LOI may be receipt of third-party consents, such as a landlord consent or customer contract consents, receipt of any regulatory approval or any permits from a governmental authority, financing conditions, including receipt of debt financing, as well as receipt of equity financing if raising outside capital, in each case on terms acceptable to the buyer, execution and delivery of the definitive transaction documents, acceptance of offers of employment by certain key employees, and any other action, the consummation of which is critical for purposes of closing the deal. Next up is the non-compete and non-solicitation sections. If the seller's going to agree to a non-compete or non-solicit covenant, agreeing not to compete with the buyer in the subject business area for a certain period of time or hire the buyer's employees after closing, this should be stated clearly in the LOI. A brief note on the enforceability of non-competes. Non-compete provisions have historically been viewed skeptically by courts. The rationale is pretty simple. Telling a human being that they can't earn a living is generally frowned upon except in very limited circumstances. One of those instances, however, that's commonly accepted by courts is on a sale of business. In short, if the seller is allowed to open a competing business directly across the street from the business they sold to you the day after you close you are sunk. That seller knows the market, the customers, the employees, and literally everything else about that business at a level that will take you years to achieve. Therefore, most courts approve a non-compete so long as it's reasonably tailored in both scope, meaning geography and type of business, as well as duration in terms of how long the non-compete lasts solely to the extent necessary to protect your legitimate business interests. As an example, telling the seller of a car wash in California that they can't open a competing car wash anywhere in America would probably not be reasonable in scope. If, however, you told them they couldn't open a competing car wash across the street or even anywhere in the same county, you're probably on safe ground. You get the idea here. Be careful not to negotiate non-compete terms that are so restrictive that they're subject to legal challenge. A practice tip on non-competes, the law governing non-competes varies significantly from state to state. You should speak with a competent transaction attorney with experience in this area regarding what is allowed in your jurisdiction before you agree to any non-compete. Next up is confidentiality. This is a provision that's often overlooked in an LOI. Before a buyer begins negotiating an LOI with a seller, that buyer will often execute a non-disclosure and confidentiality agreement with the seller's broker. As a result, it's easy to think that the parties are already covered by confidentiality, and that may be the case as many broker NDAs are drafted to cover disclosures by the seller, not just the broker. But the seller's generally not a party to the broker's NDA, and the broker's NDA usually only covers information shared by the seller with the buyer and not the other way around. For all those reasons, it's important in the LOI phase to include an additional confidentiality provision that covers the sharing of information directly between the seller and the buyer. Arguably, the most important provision of the LOI is the exclusivity and no-shop provision. This provision prohibits a seller from continuing to market the business and negotiate the sale of the business with alternate buyers while your transaction is pending. Many sellers, and especially their brokers, may resist agreeing to exclusivity on the theory that they shouldn't have to stop marketing the business in case the buyer leaves the seller at the altar, so to speak. While a buyer may empathize with that argument, it's a flawed one. The buyer is making a substantial investment of cost and time on due diligence and other elements of the negotiation process. If a seller is free to continue to negotiate with other potential buyers, there's nothing stopping the seller from causing you as a buyer to spend substantial time and resources, financial or otherwise, only to drop the buyer at the 11th hour in favor of another buyer with a slightly higher offer. A buyer should always resist any attempt by a seller or broker to permit the continued marketing of the business once the LOI is signed. Any refusal by a seller or broker to enter into exclusivity is a red flag, a huge red flag, and a buyer should strongly consider walking away from the deal. Here's an example of an exclusivity and no shop provision that you may see in an LOI. Until the later of some number of days after signing the LOI and the termination date, seller will not directly or indirectly and will cause its affiliates and its and their respective directors, officers, employees, members, managers, agents, advisors, and representatives not to solicit or encourage any inquiries, discussions, or proposals Continue, propose, or enter into negotiations or discussions with respect to, provide non-public information relating to or in connection with, or authorize, recommend, propose, or enter into any confidentiality agreement, term sheet, letter of intent, purchase agreement or other agreement arrangement or understanding regarding an acquisition of all or any part of an investment in or a business combination or consolidation or formation of partnership or joint venture with or the issuance of equity securities representing more than 10% of the outstanding equity securities of the company or any of its affiliates in each case other than involving only buyer or any of its affiliates. Until the termination date, seller agrees to inform buyer promptly of any inquiry, discussion, or proposal from any person or entity of the type referred to above, including the terms thereof. That was a mouthful. Finally, let's revisit the non-binding effect of the LOI. At this point, you may be asking yourself, wait a second, I thought you said back at the start of this that LOI should be non-binding agreements. So what good is an exclusivity and no-shot provision if the LOI is not binding? Well, that is a great question. While the LOI is generally non-binding, especially the deal terms, certain portions of the LOI should indeed be binding. For the reasons discussed above, a buyer doesn't generally want to be obligated to any commercial terms or to even close a transaction without conducting thorough post-LOI due diligence review on the business. But certain provisions of the LOI have to be binding to protect a buyer's interests. Examples of binding clauses in an LOI will include the confidentiality provision, the exclusivity and no-shop provision, and certain other legal boilerplate provisions like jurisdiction and choice of law. A simple paragraph that an LOI may include regarding the limited binding nature of an LOI is as follows. Except for paragraphs, and here you'll list all the paragraphs you want to be binding, each of which shall be binding on the parties. This letter, including the first paragraph hereof, is intended to express only a mutual indication of interest in the acquisition and does not represent any form of legally binding commitment or obligation on the part of buyer or seller. A few final thoughts. LOIs are a very important part of the transaction process. In addition to negotiating and clarifying certain important terms of a deal, it's also an opportunity to set the tone and get a preview at the seller's, the broker's, and the seller's legal counsel's approach and demeanor for the transaction. Think of it as a preview of things to come. Use that to your advantage. You can use the LOI process to build a lot of goodwill with the seller, but beware, you can burn goodwill with a seller just as fast, if not faster than you can build it, especially during the LOI phase. So be professional, be thoughtful, and above all, be constructive.
1: for this session at the business buying masterclass. Now, for a few required disclaimers, sorry in advance. This course is being presented strictly for educational and informational purposes and not for the purpose of marketing any legal services or seeking legal employment and is not motivated by pecuniary gain. The opinions stated in this course from the author's represent the opinions of such individual author and not the opinions of any other person or organization. Nothing contained in this course or otherwise from the office hereof is to be interpreted as legal, financial, tax, investment, and or any other form of advice. Please consult your own legal, financial, tax, investment, and or other advisors. The authors are not your lawyer and no information provided in the course of this class or otherwise has the effect of forming an attorney-client relationship between you and the office. In short, get your own lawyer. This course is being presented by the SMB Center, LLC, and has no affiliation or relationship to SMB Law Group, LLP. The authors have worked for some of the most elite law firms in the world. During their time in big law, they regularly worked on transactions in the hundreds of millions to billion dollar plus range for some of the most recognizable companies in the world and have extensive experience with M&A. The authors have since begun investing in select SMB acquisitions and have co-founded an SMB-focused law firm where they've collectively worked on hundreds of millions of dollars in SMB-focused M&A.